by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and a very warm welcome to another episode of Emerging Markets Decoded, the podcast that tackles the latest trends shaping the world of emerging markets. I'm your host for today, Thaddeus Best from Moody's Global Emerging Markets team, coming to you from London. On today's show, we'll be focusing on Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Sovereign's debt burdens will be universally higher, on average 15 percentage points of GDP relative to 2019 in this region, while debt affordability becomes increasingly challenged. We'll discuss how a surge in gross borrowing requirements during the pandemic disproportionately affects sovereigns with domestic funding constraints, many of which are located in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, And we'll also look at how the pandemic has affected domestic banking systems across the continent and where the most pain has been felt. Uh, We'll end the show taking a look at the telecom sector in sub-Saharan Africa, where despite these sovereign challenges, we still see lots of growth opportunities. First up, we're joined by two of my colleagues, Elisa Parisi-Capone from our Sovereign Risk Group and Peter Mashangwe from our Financial Institutions Group. Peter, Elisa, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Thaddeus. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Thaddeus, and glad to be here. Let's start with you, Elisa. Uh, Given the high levels of gross borrowing requirements over the coming years, funding sources for sovereigns are are very much in focus, particularly for the lower-rated sovereigns where liquidity risks could become more acute. Now, one buffer against the volatility of external markets uh, has always been the availability of domestic funding. Now, you've been looking into the differences uh, in the depth and the breadth of local currency funding bases across African sovereigns. Now, how is the region different when we compare it to global peers? Thanks, Thaddeus. Well, indeed, Africa's capital markets include among the world's least developed in terms of debt, access, efficiency, and stability metrics which really limits government's local currency funding base. For example, at different ends of the spectrum, we do have Angola and South Africa. Both sovereigns have very large debt stocks to GDP, but in Angola, only 10% of that is denoted in local currency, whereas in South Africa, the local currency share is over 80%. And how does tapping local sources mitigate credit risks for these sovereigns? Well, the credit implications of deeper local currency funding sources are several. First, a higher local currency debt share reduces the debt stock sensitivity to currency movements. So that feeds into fiscal strength. Second, governments have less control over global funding conditions. So the availability of domestic funding sources provides an important buffer against external shocks. And this in turn reduces liquidity risk. And third, uh, deeper local currency capital markets improve the monetary policy transmission channel. This promotes financial stability and sets the stage for further capital market development in the future. Mm, So, I mean, those are all positive factors. Um, But I would say that one of the common risks we often hear about in the context of governments borrowing domestically uh, particularly in the emerging market space, is the crowding out effect. So that the, the idea that an increase in government borrowing from 
domestic banks will in turn reduce the bank's capacity to lend to the private sector. Uh, given the huge increase in government borrowing requirements, is this a risk for sub-Saharan African sovereigns and their banking systems? Well, looking at the data, we do indeed find a negative relationship between sovereign exposures on bank balance sheets and credit extended to the private sector among many African sovereigns. Specifically, we find that the risk of crowding out is more pronounced among those banking systems that have traditionally a large orientation towards lending to the private sector and where the government usually relies on non-bank financial systems to meet its funding needs. Examples are specifically in among Southern African economies, including South Africa, Botswana, but also Kenya, Uganda and Morocco. Now, on the subject of domestic banks, I'd like to bring in Peter here. Um, Peter, we've just heard how sovereign borrowing requirements could start to uh, stretch banks lending capacity in some countries in sub-Saharan Africa. However, the pandemic has also had a more direct impact on banks' performance across the continent. And we've started to see the tangible impact of that in their financial statements. You've been looking at the performance of uh, 15 of the largest banks in South Africa, Nigeria, uh, Kenya, Morocco. What impact has the pandemic had on these banks' asset quality and, and where has the pain been felt the most? The pandemic caused an unprecedented economic disruption across uh, economies in, in Africa last year, and that created extremely challenging operating environments for the banks, uh, which resulted in steep deterioration in asset quality for all the banks we covered in the report you mentioned, uh, except the Nigerian banks. Uh, the volume of NPLs rose sharply in Kenya, uh, increasing 83% year on year and 54% for South Africa's largest four banks. Uh, looking at the NPL ratios, uh, they broke through their 10-year highs for Kenyan and Moroccan banks. Uh, the exception to this trend was Nigerian banks, where the volume of problem loans at the largest five banks that we covered in the report increased by only 2%, and the NPO ratio instead improved by about 80 basis points. You note here, I tell you, that uh, uh, for the other three systems, the NPO ratio increased by an average of 200 basis points. Uh, Nigeria's NPO ratio is now at about 6%, uh, just around its 10-year average, while for all other systems, uh, that is South Africa, Kenya, and Morocco, the NPO ratios are way above their 10-year averages. Thanks, Peter. It's curious to hear that Nigerian banks were very much the exception to the trend last year, because if we look at the uh, Nigerian economy last year and the shock that it went through following the, the drop in oil prices uh, at the outset of the pandemic, uh, it went through quite a severe amount of, of stress. Um, what are the reasons behind the exceptional performance of the Nigerian banks compared to uh, other banks on the continent? Indeed, Nigeria's economy contracted last year, but banks reported lower NPLs primarily due to a large volume of restructured loans. Nigerian banks restructured around half of their total loans at one point, and we estimate that these restructured loans account for about 40% of bank loans now. This is an extremely high level of restructured loans compared to South Africa and Kenya, for example. In South Africa, about 15 to 20% of loans were restructured. In Kenya, restructured loans contributed about 90% of total loans. Although most of these restructured loans in Nigeria are vulnerable, 
the majority are not classified as non-performing loans, which suppresses the volume of NPLs. So we believe this was the main driver of the divergence in reported asset quality metrics by Nigerian banks compared to other banks in South Africa, Kenya, and Morocco. Understood. And Peter, presumably thinking about this increase in non-performing loans, not just in Nigeria, but across uh, across the sub-Saharan African continent, uh, that also carries negative implications, presumably, for these banks' profitability uh, this year. Interestingly, uh, we expect profits to recover this year in South Africa, Kenya, and Morocco. And this will mainly uh, a result of a reversal of loan loss provisions. Um, you are correct that the NPLs will uh, strain banks' profitability, uh, but the banks in South Africa, Kenya, and Morocco, they more than double their provisions. That is the provision they set aside for loan losses last year. Uh, this gives them a buffer to absorb any further loan losses that may come through. Um, return on assets broke through their 10-year lows in South Africa and Morocco, and we expect uh, an improvement in return on assets this year, uh, although they will remain below their long-term averages. Uh, again, Nigeria uh, was an, an, an exception. Uh, the volume of provisions increased only by 66% uh, last year, and um, uh, this compares to an average of 177 for the South African, Kenyan, and Moroccan banks. As a result of that, uh, the loan loss provisions to cross loans for Nigerian banks remains below their long-term averages, uh, while for South Africa and Kenyan banks, it actually broke through their 10-year highs last year. Uh, this lower level of provisions for Nigerian banks compared to the other systems uh, meant that the profit they reported was somewhat uh, uh, overstated, but we expect banks to uh, increase their provision this year, which should uh, uh, put negative pressures on their profits. Elisa, turning back to you here, uh, one of the really interesting trends arising from the pandemic has been the increased adoption of uh, more unorthodox policies among emerging market sovereigns. Uh, in the face of such large increases in government borrowing requirements last year, and, and also in the increased pressures on banks to continue lending to the private sector, while also facing their own challenges in terms of the rising problem loans that Peter has just talked about. Uh, we've also seen financing being provided directly from the central bank to the government's coffers. Where has this been most prominent? Well, using the threshold generally used by the IMF during fiscal adjustment programs, we find that Mozambique, Ghana, Tunisia, Zambia, Nigeria, and Tanzania are among those sovereigns where central bank lending to the government exceeded 10% of preceding year's revenue in 2020, and in some cases significantly so. So it is important to distinguish increased recourse to central bank funding for fiscal purposes from quantitative easing where the policy is geared towards monetary policy purposes where we do see an effective monetization of deficits, this carries the risks of stoking inflation and of destabilizing the currency if these adverse expectations uh, take hold among investors. From the credit perspective, the recourse to central bank funding for fiscal purposes is therefore indicative of fiscal dominance risk, especially among those sovereigns where alternative funding sources are scarce and where the central bank uh, exposures have been growing even before the pandemic. 
Fascinating. Elisa, Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Tadias. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Tadias. We've just heard from Elisa and Peter on how the pandemic is increasing credit risks for sovereigns and banking systems across sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Now we're going to take a look at the telecom sector across the continent, where despite these rising sovereign risks, we still see lots of growth opportunities. I'm pleased to be joined today by my colleague Lisa Yeager from the Corporates team in Dubai. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tadeus. Thanks for having me. Now, Lisa, despite the relatively downbeat assessment for sub-Saharan African sovereigns, uh, the outlook for the telecommunications sector seems to be one of the few bright spots. Uh, You're projecting strong growth in the sector over the next three to five years. What factors are underpinning this forecast and, and how has it been affected by the pandemic? Yeah, so to answer the last part of your question first, the telco sector globally has been well insulated from the effects of the pandemic and Sub-Saharan Africa is no exception to that. This probably comes as no surprise as most of us have been spending a lot more time online during lockdowns as well. Specifically to Sub-Saharan Africa now, the telco sector there has been growing strongly over the past few years and this has continued over 2020 and we expect this to remain the case also for the next few years. To put some numbers on this, we've seen constant currency revenue growth of at least 10% every year for the past three years for MTN and Airtel Africa, who are the two largest mobile operators across Africa. And the reason for this really comes down to one main factor, and that's subscriber growth. Telco revenues are a function of the number of subscribers and the average revenue that you can generate from each of those subscribers. And that's called ARPU or average revenue per user. Increasing ARPU is really difficult for telcos globally because in most countries, telcos is a very competitive market. But in Sub-Saharan Africa, the other lever that telcos have, it really is subscriber growth. And that's driven by two very favorable demographic dynamics. The first one being that the continent has a very young and growing population. 42% of the population is under the age of 15. And then the second factor, kind of leading, coming out of that as well, to some extent, is that uh, there's still a relatively low mobile phone penetration. We estimate that less than half of the people actually own a mobile phone. Whereas in America, Europe, most of Asia, or where I'm based in the GCC, you have a hard time finding anyone without a mobile phone, especially amongst adults. And from an affordability perspective in Sub-Saharan Africa, the biggest hurdle really is access to a device, but prices for those, especially the more basic models, keep on coming down. So the outlook on that front is very positive as well. Mm. I mean, even after taking into account these positive factors, sub-Saharan African markets tend to be quite challenging operating environments with generally weaker institutional frameworks than developed markets. Is it fair to say that these telecoms operators are not entirely insulated from the risks facing the sovereigns? Uh, and for example, we're seeing dollar liquidity shortages in both Nigeria and Zimbabwe at the moment. What impact is this having on the telecoms operators? Yes, that's right. The operating environment is definitely a riskier one. Companies are always exposed to the macro environment of the country that they operate in, and that extends beyond just the economy of the country. But it also includes the political, social, legal and regulatory situation in the country. The most visible risk and the one that you can probably quantify the best is what you just mentioned, and that is exposure to weakening local currencies and in the more extreme cases, capital controls and limited access to dollars. The reason that this is impacting telcos is that their earnings are in local currencies, 
while a large part of the cost is in dollars. So that's, for example, the investment such as equipment purchases, and a lot of times also the debt service. It's not always possible, or it can be very expensive to issue debt in local currency. And so a large portion of debt is in dollars and becomes more expensive, therefore, when the currency of your earnings weakens. In the case of Nigeria, the country experienced a severe dollar shortage in 2020, and that made it nearly impossible for the two largest mobile network operators in the country to move any profits to the head office. And that's something that companies normally do, uh, and they do that in order to allocate capital where it's most needed within the group. So not being able to do that really can have a negative impact on a company's operations. The case for Zimbabwe is a bit more extreme. The country's currency was pegged to the dollar. And when the government uh, gave up that pack last year, the currency depreciated by over 90%. And that has, of course, led to material reduction in the value of investments or cash flows that company generate from the country. Now, despite these risks, major global telecoms companies like Vodafone, like Orange, uh, through their subsidiary holdings, are among some of the largest mobile network operators in major sub-Saharan African countries. So what's the appeal for them? And, and does the higher risk profile of these markets have a negative effect on, on the credit profile of these global telecoms companies? Yeah, that's an interesting point. And it allows me also to come back and uh, point out the differences that we see between the more developed markets and sub-Saharan Africa. So these large international operators really aren't growing anymore in the European home markets. And Africa presents a really good growth opportunity for them and has also been the only consistently growing region for these operators over the past few years. Vodafone has made it clear that Africa is a core market, and that's basically the only core market that they have outside of Europe. Vodafone owns large stakes in Vodacom and Safaricom, and through them has leading operations in some of the biggest markets in Sub-Saharan Africa. So that's including South Africa, DRC, Tanzania, Kenya, and Ghana. And they've also just won the first and so far only private operating license in Ethiopia. Orange also is a large operator. They're mainly in French-speaking North and West Africa and have presence in 16 countries on the continent. Both of these operators, though, continue to generate the vast majority of their earnings from Europe, and they're also very diversified across African countries. And so they're not reliant on cash flows from any single African country. And if they were to encounter any of the issues that were just discussed, such as currency weakening or a temporary inability to move money out of a country, that wouldn't have any significant impact on the operations of the wider group. And so therefore, no, it doesn't have a negative impact on their credit profiles. I think it's actually rather the opposite. And um, Africa represents a really good option for them to uh, diversify their growth and just benefit from the growth on the continent. It's been a pleasure speaking with you today, Lisa. Thank you for joining us on the Emerging Markets Decoded podcast today. Uh, and for those interested in keeping up to speed with our latest views across all emerging markets, you can visit our dedicated Emerging Markets Hub for the very latest research, podcasts, uh, and interactive webinars at em.moody's.io. You can now also subscribe to Emerging Markets Decoded on your favorite podcast channels, including Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Please do share with us your reviews, comments, and suggestions for future episodes. But until next time, stay safe and thanks for joining us.